Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Paul Angoni. Paul is the author of three books. His latest book is 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. He is really one of these leading voices for millennials today with his previous book also and his his website, allgrownup.com, which is grown like you're groaning in pain. And he's been blogging on there for more than eight years now. And we're excited to talk to Paul today about older teenagers and helping your teenagers to look ahead to their 20s and to the important questions that they're going to be having to ask. So, Paul, thank you so much for uh, being here today. Really excited. Thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be here. I was hoping you could just tell me a little bit about like your story and what led you to write this book in particular. I know there's another book also. This one is kind of the follow-up to that one. And uh, I was wondering kind of what the story is behind those and how they came to be. Yeah, I, I have been writing and focusing on the 20s and this kind of defining decade of your life. You know, Meg Jay called it the defining sure. decade of yeah. your life. And, I, and I've been focusing on that for the last 13 years. And mainly because as a 21-year-old graduating from college with all these big hopes and big dreams of making a difference or making a lot of money or at least doing a job that sounded really cool that I could brag about (laughs) on this new social network called Facebook, which it was fairly new when I was graduating from college to date myself now. I'm getting old, (laughs) you know. But anyway, you know, I quickly realized that all my hopes and dreams, big plans of doing all these huge things weren't coming true as I was working in a cubicle. Mm feeling like, man, is this what life's about? In my new book, I talk about this story. I lead in with the story of of our breakup, of going through this epic breakup where I got dumped. And I won't go through all the details. It's pretty long and epic. You know, it's I'm in the pouring rain. I've been driving 20 hours. I get dumped. I feel like I'm in like a Gilmore Girls episode or something. It's not good. And uh, (laughs) it's not good. But, but you know, that feeling after you break up with somebody, right? You don't even know what to do with yourself. You know, so much of your identity and your future was wrapped up in this relationship. This other person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and after college, I felt that same kind of feeling. And, and, and I think transition mm. is like that. Change is like that. You're breaking up with a version of yourself. You're breaking yeah. up with a season. You're breaking up with a place. And there's a lot of breaking when you break up. Mm. And so I do think it's a very intense time of life, you know, from teens into your 20s as you're becoming an adult, there's a lot of big questions. So that's why I've been focused on first book, 101 Secrets to Your 20s, now 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s, because I think it's such an important decade of your life. Yeah, I think that's a cool point, because personally, a lot of my research is based in social psychology. And I think that identity is like such an elusive issue, but definitely during college, like 
your identity as a college student is really, really salient and important to you. And I just was at dinner last night. I mean, as soon as people find out that I'm the t- parent teen researcher guy, like, it's like, oh my God, let me tell you about my 16 year old. Uh, so I was at dinner last night and this guy next to me was just like, oh, this 20 year old kid, you know, and yada, yada, yada. But it was that, it's this exact thing that you're talking about, I think. It's like he's, he's right there, 20 years old in this period of kind of like, do I even go to college? Trying to figure out that identity and yeah i love your concept of the signature sauce yeah and and i think that's so cool because i think that this is like what the 20s is all about is finding your signature sauce and how how you can contribute to the world in a positive way and yeah i wonder if you could just tell me what is the signature sauce how did you develop that concept and how do you find it yeah thank you I was trying to figure out a way to break down like these overwhelming questions of like, what are you going to do with your life? Or even deeper than that, like you were saying, what is your identity? What is your calling? What is your purpose? What is your passion? What's your vocation? You know, all these overwhelming questions. And I was a communication studies major in college. And I basically picked that so I could pick the broadest major possible (laughs) without really having to make a choice. I had to make a choice, but without really making a choice, right? So I never knew that. Mm. And so I was I was always like, man, I would work 80 hours a week, no problem. I would push it. I would sure. sacrifice. I would do whatever it take if I could find that thing, yeah. you know? And it was always that elusive search. Huh. So I started developing this idea of finding your signature sauce because I loved it as a metaphor of, you know, first of all, visualizing that master chef yeah, yeah, in a kitchen. Right. And I love watching these chef documentaries, right? Like uh, Chef's Table on Netflix. Mm. Uh, it, that's a great, it's about, you know, these artists, these creators, these, these people and their stories and how it relates to their journey in the kitchen. Yeah. And so that started inspiring me too. So I started picturing us, each one of us as these chefs in the kitchen and it, and, and bringing these flavors together, bringing these different ingredients together, because uh. I felt like finding your identity or calling your purpose. It wasn't just one ingredient. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like a lot of books and a lot of formulas, it was all about, well, take this ingredient. Like, you know, just do garlic, you know, and if you just do garlic, all the, and it's like, no, if you're going to have a good sauce, we all know you have to have these different flavors, ingredients, a little of this, and they got to mix together just right. Right. It's like you, you start out with a a lot of raw ingredients and it's not like, Hey, you need to get rid of all of these. It's like, Hey, they just need the right sauce. You know, like that's going to tie them all together. And like, you know, sometimes an entire dish can just be like made by having just the right sauce on it. Right. And yeah, uh, it's like the twenties are like, how do you find just the right sauce to like spice up your life? And so I wonder what does it look like when you find that? First of all, I think it's a, it's a process and a journey, you know, just like that chef in the kitchen. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of failed experiments where the whole thing goes up in flames mm. or it burns on the bottom of the pan. And then it's just like that sick black stuff and you got to throw the pan out and start over. I mean, so I love that part of it too. Like there's that process of it. Uh. But then in, in reality, some of the ingredients that I think go into each one of our signature sauce are things like, you know, one, your, your story. So I, I like starting with your story, you know, your, your backstory, yeah, you know, right. and I'm a writer, so I'm all about backstory. So what is your backstory and, and what I call the pivotal plot points of your story? Oh, that's cool. So yeah, I like that. meaning your biggest triumphs and your tragedies that you've gone through. Your personal narrative. 
Yeah, and and why was that a triumph for you? Mm-hmm. Like, what were you actually doing? Were you leading? Were you researching? What were you doing? And then also your tragedies. So some of the hard things you've gone through. Because sometimes I think it's those hard things that become your passion, right? You know, a lot of yeah. people ask me, well, how do I find my passion? I'm like, well, typically you find your passion by going through something extremely hard, difficult, where you feel like you're going to die. You feel like you're failing. You feel like the world's going to end. But somehow you make it through, yeah, right? right? And somehow you get through that. And now you want to help other people. Now you want to help solve that problem for somebody else. So actually, a lot of the times it's our pain and our frustration that can then lead into our purpose. So trying to figure that out within the context of your story so that you're then working on the you know the next chapters, right? Your future story, because that's what we're focused on. But if you don't know where you came from, mm-hmm. And why these certain things were important to you? Well, that's and that's so that's just one ingredient I like of what that. I say are t- are ten ingredients that go into it. You would then just try to kind of look back over the course of your whole life and pick out what are the like three to five salient big points, ups and downs, and then those are kind of like the raw materials that you're going to start with. Yeah, and that's what I do in this 101 questions you ask book. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm breaking it down and I'm asking people, yeah, put the three to five biggest triumphs of your life, put the three to five biggest tragedies yeah. of your life. And then you start pulling out some themes and you start pulling out some things. And then we'll ask another question of, okay, what are your biggest values? Like what are the most important soul values to you? And that's another ingredient, your soul values. You know, these core beliefs that are driving your decisions, driving your thinking. When when the rubber hits the road and you hit the crossroads, like there's certain values that are going to be guiding you. Do you know what those values are? And I think we we think we know what our values are. But we haven't really gone through the process of actually putting them on paper, you yeah. know, and, and writing them down. And a mentor of mine did this with me, a guy named Ray Rude, this wise mentor. And he forced me to do this. And I thought it was so silly and like, oh, I know my values. Right. But a- actually doing it was such an incredibly difficult because he actually has me rank them uh. from one to five. And I ask people to do this in my book, too, is rank what's your number one value and your number two yeah. And that's a part of your story, you know, so your story is leading into what your soul values are and your values are, you know, so it's all, it's again, it's very fluid, but trying to break these ingredients down. I love that. And I think I'd love to talk about that a little more because uh, values is one of the kind of cornerstones that I think is fundamental with teenagers. But it's like when your kids are younger, I think your job as a parent is more to instill values in them. But as they get into their 20s, this age group that you're talking about, it's like, they need to have internalized them by then. And like you're saying, that's the point where they then need to go out on their own and test and see, are those values that my parents were giving me, are those really mine? And, and yeah. they need to decide for themselves. And until they make that decision completely for themselves that I want to take this on, it's never really yeah. going to be their core identity, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do you, how do you as a parent say, Hey, look, this is what I've been trying to teach you, but there's a certain point where I have to say, you know, yeah, you gotta. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. Like if, you know, and I'm a dad of younger kids, you know, I've got the seven, five and two year old. Yeah, yeah. But I often think about that. Like you even put it in the context of the playground, you know, and you're watching your kid ah. go across the monkey bars or something and they're about to fall. Like they're dangling with one arm. It's always that question of what's better for them. You know, like. Do I go over and catch them uh, or like you're trying to judge like how bad is this fall going to be? Is this fall going to actually hurt them or can they drop? And now they've learned something, you know, about uh, how far they can go in the monkey bars. Yeah. 
there's never one answer because it's all dependent on the situation. But I feel like as a a parent of a teen and 20-something, you're doing that similar thing of how big is this fall going to be? Is this a fall that maybe I need to catch them a little bit on? Maybe I need to just guide the fall a little bit or maybe do I need to let them drop because it's not going to be that bad, but it's going to be enough failure that's going to now hone that signature sauce. It's going to be like, well, that failure is a part of it now. Because if your teen and 20-something is going to figure out some of these big questions, at some point they're going to have to get lost, so to speak. Sure, yeah. Because to explore, you have to get lost. Like that's kind of the whole point of exploring is you're getting lost, but you're getting lost on purpose with purpose. And so that's the hard part is how do you help your teen and 20-something get lost on purpose, but do it with purpose and intentionality. So it's kind of this intentional lostness. Yeah, yeah, It's not just wandering and feeling like you're out all alone and isolated, but it's this intentional lostness. And so it's nuanced, Mm. you know, it's not as formulaic, I think, as sometimes we make it. As a researcher, I'm big on like getting data and like, what is it going to take to like test this hypothesis and then move on to the next question. And I think it's like kind of the same thing in your life. Like that's what I was trying to tell this guy last night. I was like, you know, at the end of the day, the more things your son fails at during the next two years, the closer he's going to get to finding whatever it is that he loves. So it sounds like he loves quitting things. Could you just make him a deal that, hey, (laughs) I'll pay your rent, you know, uh, for free. As long as you can prove to me every month that you have quit 10 things, you know, otherwise it's 500 bucks a month, which seems like fair, fair, fair rent, right? Like, but just some, yeah. something like that, that is kind of fun, fun and quirky, but like, yeah. you know, quitting is fine as long as uh, by trying it, you were able to answer a question about what's yeah. not right for you or something that gets you closer to finding that signature sauce, I think. Yeah, that's great. Are there any of these questions that you have in this book, 101 questions for your 20s, that you would specifically jump out at you as being even important earlier during the teenage years? Well, I definitely, I mean, I think there's a lot of them that are applicable to your teenage years. And and if a teenager picked up this book, and I do have a lot of teenagers that read this book, and it's like they're getting the the answers to the test, you know, for, (laughs) you know, four years from now. Right. And and it's awesome. (laughs) Who doesn't want the answers to the test before you have to start taking the test? Totally. So I'm always pumped by teenagers, you know, 17, 18 year old. And I'm always so proud of them because I'm like, man, if I was asking these questions when I was 17 or 18, Mm. I would have saved myself so much unneeded anxiety and frustration and uh, feelings of failure and all those things. But, um, you know, I I think one of them that's big for all of us, whether you're teens, 20s or whatever, is I asked this question in the book of, am I seeing the other side of of everybody's Instagram photos. <laughs> so it's a social media based question. And, and I know our preference for what social media network we might use will be different. You know, you might be on Snapchat, you might be on Instagram, you might be on Twitter or whatever it is, Pinterest. But basically it's this idea, and I talk about this more in, in my first book, but this idea of what I call obsessive comparison disorder. Mm. And and I feel like this is a huge one for all of us on social media, this idea that we're constantly comparing ourselves every second of the day through social media. Yeah. And we're, and we're comparing these images of perceived success that other people are putting out there or they're kind of epic lives. You know, they're these amazing lives. Yeah, they're traveling. Right. They're experiencing all these things. So making sure that you're, first of all, that you're realizing like all these photos are too good to be true. Uh, like they're not reality. Uh, 
there's another side to this, and, and I call it the dark side of, of the moon, you know, it's like okay. Pink Floyd-esque, you know, going way back to the 70s. But, but my wife and I were actually looking at that, like looking at the moon and like the moon looks so bright to all of us, right? Like it looks like the same picture to all of us. Yeah. But there's the dark side of it, you know, and we don't ever see that dark side mm. because that's not what's being reflected back to us. So it's kind of that same idea when you're looking at social media, like not that you're looking for all the bad things in people, but that you're noticing, first of all, that everybody's got their problems, Mm -hmm. that the grass is always greener on the other side until you get there and realize it's because of all the manure that's there, you know, and that's what's helping the grass grow. But it's some smelly stuff sometimes. I think that's important for all of us so that we don't get overwhelmed in this obsessive comparison disorder, Mm. this constant comparison game, which then makes us feel terrible, which makes us feel like we're not succeeding or we're lacking. Yeah, Uh, yeah, And it's also blocking authentic conversations because we're all trying to play this game of, oh, my life is kind of too good to be true instead of having authentic conversations Mm. in that respect. So I I think that's a big one for teens, for 20, anybody that's forming their identity that social media is not always obviously an accurate representation. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And because also, you know, during the teenage years, those social comparison parts of the brain are so highly active as anyone who has ever been a teenager probably is aware. So one of the things during my teenage years, uh, especially when I was in high school, that really had a profound impact on my life was finding, you know, like the tapes from all those old like self-development guys back in the 80s and just listening to them all over and over and over again. And I think the big takeaway message from all of those guys is just that like what makes you successful in your life, it's not big grand things. It's just like small everyday habits And you have a section about this in your book. If I do this now, how am I going to feel about this later? The insignificant decisions, what do I eat for lunch? How do I spend those extra 15 minutes exponentially add up over time? And I mean, it's just two chapters in your book, but I thought it was just like so insightful. And I wonder if you could talk a little more about those small, insignificant decisions. Yeah, you realize pretty quickly that, you know, success, like you were saying, it's like taking bucket of water after bucket of water and you're trying to fill up this old well, right? And it's the well is deep. And there's a lot in there and there's no water in there. And so you're going to the river and you're bringing back bucket of water after bucket of water after bucket of water. And it's going to take a lot of buckets of water before the water starts to overflow, Uh right? It could take 5,000 buckets, 10, 15,000, who knows? But you're enjoying the process though, right? You're enjoying that. Wow, I'm getting stronger. Yeah. I'm carrying this bucket of water after bucket of water and my arms are getting stronger. My legs are getting stronger. Wow. I'm noticing the beautiful landscape around me. Wow. I'm getting all this insight from nature and you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're being mindful of the process. And so anyway, but yeah, it's going to take maybe let's say 15,000 buckets before anybody <laughs> sees the water start p- spilling over because yeah, nobody's right. going to care and they're all going to think you're crazy and they're all going to say, well, this is too hard. Why are you doing this? But you start to realize that concept that there's, there's 99% mundane moments yeah. in your life that you have to create, you know, magic in those mundane moments yeah, yeah. and it's by doing the work. Thank you so much for making the time to come here and talk to us today about your book. I really hope that everybody gets three copies like I have, one for your <laughs> teenager, one for your spouse, and uh, one for yourself. Also, you can check out Paul's other books as well. We're here with Paul Ingoni, 
talking about his new book, 101 Questions You Need to Ask in Your 20s. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. If you're going to do anything worth doing, there is going to be so much failure and struggle and challenges. So if your worth is based solely on that, then you're going to feel miserable. But I do like that kind of cliche quote now of it takes about 10 years to create an overnight success. Yep. And I feel like that's so true. Like that whole 10,000 hours or 10 years Mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever model you want to use. And that's what it was for me. So asking those questions of what are your non-negotiables, what are your things you're willing to sacrifice so that you can come into it a little bit more clear-headed as far as, okay, here's something I need to stick to and I don't want to let this go because I feel like this is such an important value of mine. <sighs> when you're afraid, like sometimes you got to do it anyway. And sometimes mm. that might be even a sign that like you need to do it. Like when you have that fear, like for me jumping on stage and I, I do a lot of speaking. Sure. For me, that fear never goes away. I think there's this lie that, oh, just some people just never get afraid jumping on stage. Like the fear of public speaking is just not a fear for them. Uh, well, actually, I think a lot of them still are really afraid of it. I'm really afraid of it. It's intense to get in front of a thousand people on a live stage. But yeah. that fear, I step into the fear, you know, and I've started to realize that like that fear actually gives me more adrenaline and it makes me come more alive and I'm actually thinking clearer because it's like my life depends on it. Like mm-hmm. I have to be on, like I have to do this. Sure. And so sometimes that fear can actually be a catalyst for stepping into something and doing something great. So yeah, sometimes fear is good. Like you're at a party, you know, and everybody's drinking and you're afraid like some stuff's going to go down or the cops are going to come or like people are going to get in trouble. Like that fear is telling you to act, to do something, you know, and that's good. But sometimes fear can be kind of a liar saying like, you're going to embarrass yourself. What is everybody going to think of you? Like you're going to fail. Yeah. But you have to balance that out. You have to try to figure out what moments is fear telling you the truth and what what moments is fear telling you a lie. And you might need to step into that fear because you need to take that chance. So I, I would ask a teenager like, hey... Is it worth not, you know, trying for this? Like, is it worth not going for that harder class or trying for the sports team or trying out for the first lead in the play? Or is it worth not knowing? Like, if it doesn't work out, like, that's fine. It wasn't going to work out if you didn't try. So you might as well put your hat in the ring. You never know what's going to happen. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.